So last month, I intentionally scheduled this film, The Hangover, to talk about on Father's Day. I had plans and I had hopes. The plans were that I knew the comedy was about four young men who get into a pile in trouble, chaos, acting like idiots in Las Vegas. So the hope was this. That they would learn something real through their misdeeds about themselves and somehow manage to right their situation all the while becoming deeper, more noble men. The movie is about men behaving badly. They learn the consequences of their actions. That was the hope that it might be this message about that journey from immaturity to maturity. A nice Father's Day message about men growing up. I tried really hard to find that theme in this movie. And my answer is, not so much. Now, in essence, this comedy is a mystery story. It is about four friends who head off for a night in Sin City for a bachelor party two nights before one of them is about to get married. And things, well, let's just say simply this way, they go wrong. Only three friends wake up the next day, the groom has gone missing, and they have to retrace their missteps and their misdeed. And complicating all this is the fact that they have all been inadvertently drugged by one of their own and cannot remember a single thing except what they see the morning after, the aftermath. They discover eventually, and this is just, this is like the PG-rated version of the things that happen. Eventually, they discover the next morning that one of them has had a quickie marriage and also has had a tooth punched out. They had one, then misplaced $80,000 at the craps table. They've been to the hospital with broken ribs, and then to top it all off, they also somehow stole Mike Tyson's pet tiger. <laughs> now, let me say this. I would have liked these guys in the movie a lot more if the movie didn't want us to like these guys. They're jerks, and to be honest, Pretty dumb, too. The movie is crude, but that's not what bothers me. I do not mind crudeness. One of my favorite things on television the last decade has been South Park. If I didn't know that from time to time there were kids here, I would show a lot more South Park clips up there. South Park, though, is sly. South Park is transgressive. South Park skewers some of our sacred cows to make some of the tastiest comedic hamburger that has ever been made. So, the crudeness of this movie didn't bother me. But I'll tell you what did. The homophobia, the sexism, and the breezy, thoughtless, relentless embrace. It's almost as if they were celebrating it as a way of life. The relentless embrace of drunk driving. It is unbelievable how much drunk driving there is in this movie. And that's not a joke. Not to me, I hope not to any of us. And so I do want to say that the funniest parts of this movie come from watching these three stooges, these idiots, get payback for all of their misdeeds. As moral and spiritual guides, their only value is as counterexamples. But the movie does raise this question. And it's a question all of us face in one way or another at some point in our life, and perhaps some of you are facing it right now. How do we deal with chaos? 
How do we stay present and alive at times in our lives when everything seems to be spinning out of control, whether we are primarily responsible or whether we are not primarily responsible? The movie has no real answer to this question because the answer in the movie is that the same kind of acts of insanity that brought them into chaos will somehow magically remove them from the chaos that they have created. In fact, the action in the movie, the characters in the movie, really reminded me of this old joke. Some of you probably know it. It's about a young boy who by his friends, by his family, is spied avidly, spied avidly diving in and digging into a big, big pile of horse manure. Why? Why would you do that, they ask. He said, well, with all this crap here, there's bound to be a pony in here somewhere. That's the kind of engaging with chaos that this movie is about. They just dive in and hope there's a light at the end of the chaos tunnel. And the characters in the movie get out of the chaos in spite of themselves. I would not counsel that in any ways we act like them. And especially when trying to remove ourselves from chaos, this approach rarely proves edifying. It rarely works. I do have to say, though, that this movie brought to mind for me some of the wisest words that I ever heard about a decade, decade and a half ago when I was first studying for the ministry. And it's this. Do not go gently into that glob of goo. Do not go gently into that glob of goo. Now, the glob of goo that was being talked about is by a guy named Reverend Peter Steinke. He's talking about congregational life, but it's true in our family lives, it's true in our relationships, it's true in countries, it's true wherever we are, that we live in systems. Systems theory basically says just this, that everything in life is related at some level to everything else. The whole is more more and greater than just the sum of its parts. The energy that we see here at Wellsprings, we hear and participate in when we sing, that's part of a system. We help to grow as a healthy system. Now, this is a wonderful thing and a challenging thing, that all life is about relationship, and we cannot go anywhere and not be in relationship with something or with someone. I thought of this quote this past week by the Persian poet Saadi, who was from Iran, and I particularly have held the people of Iran in my heart this past week, as I know many of you have, to see the wonderful, chaotic, necessary things going on. He wrote these words in the 13th century. Human beings are members of a whole in creation of one essence and soul. If one member is afflicted with pain, other members uneasy will remain. If you have no sympathy for human pain, the name of human you cannot retain. 500 years later, directly influenced by this kind of thought, our own Ralph Waldo Emerson from our Unitarian tradition, he came up with just a different name for the same reality, what he called the oversoul, that each and every one of us participates in a life greater than our own and in fact are birthed from and collected up toward this one single oversoul that unites all of life. An even simpler way to put it, as the poet says, none of us is an island. None of us is an island. Now, those are some of the positive sides. We recognize how close we are. We can see how much our lives are intertwined with other people. 
But the challenging side is this. And perhaps some of you are stuck there right now. When we get stuck in systems of dysfunction, of fear, of indifference, intolerance, chaos, it is so difficult to get ourselves out. It is that glob of goo that Peter Sankey said, don't go gently into it. But he says, you know what? As part of life, we're called into it. As caring people, as compassionate people, we are called to be in the presence of life. And he said, there's a different way we can approach it. These words, the acronym is NAP. If you're in a situation of chaos, take a nap. But it doesn't mean going to sleep. It means practice being a non-anxious presence. A non-anxious presence is kind of like the really best firefighter that you can think of. The firefighter is in the fire. They are facing the fire. They are doing battle with the fire. But they are not consumed by the fire. They know what they are doing there. That's what being a non-anxious presence is all about. How do we do this? Well, sometimes when we are stuck in chaotic situations, chaotic systems, we know we have no other choice but to flee and but to leave. And sometimes there's nothing else for us to do. And absolutely, that is part of life sometimes. We just have to get away for our own sake and our own safety. Well, that's the thing about systems. Wherever we go, there they are. And if we want to grow up, to grow into full maturity as human beings, all of us at some point at another, we have to learn how to accept and cope with chaos. And there's a Buddhist teacher named Pema Chodron, who's one of my favorite teachers. She talks about, from the Buddhist tradition, that there are four limitless qualities, four virtues, if you will, that are about the realization of true awakening in life. And these four Four limitless qualities are compassion, loving kindness, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. She talks about within the tradition, and I really love this idea of you can stray too far from these limitless qualities on one side or the other. They are called the near and the far enemies. The far enemy of compassion in a system that is chaotic is indifference. You think that non-anxiety, we think that non-anxiety means just getting away and not caring. But that is one of the far enemies of compassion. Because distance that is indifference is not caring. But there's a near enemy as well too. And I love her words for this. If we are too close, too enmeshed, too enabling of a situation that is chaotic, she's got a great word for that. It's called idiot compassion. Idiot compassion is when we think we're being compassionate, but really all we are doing is try to still another person's anxiety because we ourselves are anxious. It is not being present. It is one of those people who cares so much and so much and so much that you just want to ask them, can you please care a little bit less? Because really they are not being non-anxious. They are projecting and perpetuating their fear. Any of you remember Free to Be You and Me from the 1970s? I grew up listening to it all the time. It's that great little song, Sometimes the Help is the Kind of Help We All Can Do Without. That's what idiot compassion is like. So between these extremes, between the far enemy and the near enemy, we're called to a different thing. To be, as they say, self-differentiated. 
to maintain full presence in relationship, but not to be overcome by that glob of goo. Now, people who are grounded truly in a non-anxious presence, the firefighters, they have the capacity to change themselves as part of the system and see if the system itself might change. Now, it may not. If you're stuck in a dysfunctional system and you stop playing your role within that system, probably one thing will happen. The system will break down even more. It will become more chaotic immediately, not less. But at least that will push you closer to the heart of the chaos that is going on right there. And we will all perhaps might be able to see the reality. When anxiety is pushed back, when you're around someone who's very fearful, very angry, very anxious, and you are able to say, I'm here but I'm not going to join you in that rabbit hole you're going down. When that anxiety is deflected, it can be owned by the person to who it truly belongs. There's a story that's associated with a guy named Edwin Freeman, who was Peter Steinke's mentor. And he tells the story of a long, long, long suffering alcoholic's wife. She did everything. She cleaned up after him. She made excuses for him. She protected the kids. She did everything to keep this guy from responsibility for the chaos that he was creating. Week after week, month after month, year after year, to the point where she was absolutely exhausted and yet nothing had gotten better. It just continued and continued and continued. Pop psychology, she's what we call, obviously, an enabler. She thought that maybe if I keep going, he'll wake up sometime. Maybe, maybe, maybe things won't be out of hand. But of course, what she couldn't see being involved in that system, in that great big glob of goo, is that things were out of hand already. And one morning, reaching her bottom, recognizing that she could not go further any longer with this way of life, she turned to her husband as he was hung over at the table waiting for her to fix him breakfast and start to make excuses to get on with his day. She said this, if you're going to keep drinking, that's fine. But I ask only one thing. Would you please triple your life insurance premium so that when you kill yourself, you're going to leave us with something. Leave something for me and the kids. Bang. <laughs> he started to wake up. Because what she did and what she said is that you got to own this. You have to be responsible for the chaos that you are creating. It's one of the keys to getting unstuck from a real and healthy system is by recognizing what's yours, what's mine, and what is ours. As we begin to differentiate those things, we can see who is responsible in what ways. Because in a chaotic situation, the recognition of reality is the key, and it is also the first thing to go. If you have ever been around or ever been a part of a truly anxious, fearful, fear-based system, it is like that gigantic glob of glue. And indeed, there's a lot of spiritual teachers right now who talk about that there's really wonderful joy to be found in creating your own reality. There's wonderful joy and power to be found in creating and bringing to will your own reality. Well, that already exists. Go into any dysfunctional family, 
and you will find a whole bunch of people who are all living in their own reality. But it is not a glorious thing. It's hell. One of the things that helps people wake up in a chaotic system is that they can recognize that there is a reality here and the reality is broken. That is one part of the hangover that I affirm. One part that I like, that's on target. All chaos begins as a mystery, as the world made strange. We don't know what's going on. We don't know how to handle what's going on. At least if we begin at this point, we can start to say something is wrong here. Just this past week, I received a reading that was the first understanding of that phrase from Jesus' Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, that really, really made sense to me and brought it home. It's from N. Scott Peck, you know, The Road Less Traveled, still probably the best self-help book that is out there. And he translates, blessed are the poor in spirit, not as poverty in the traditional sense, but poverty in the sense of not being able to understand what is going on. Poverty in the sense of confusion. And why are those who are blessed, if they are poor in understanding, rich in confusion? Because if you can admit, and we can admit, that we don't understand, we might actually then start to see the way out. Having a non-anxious presence means, at the outset, that we restrain our urge to pre-prescribe the fix before we even understand what the malady is. Sa'adi, that great Persian poet, simply put it this way, have patience, all things are difficult before they become easy. Have patience, all things are difficult before they become easy. It can be remarkably simple when we're in a situation of chaos. And I encourage you, if you're there right now, to learn some very simple things, to say some very simple things that you already know. I am in pain. I'm afraid. Or even recognize another person's fear. I see that you are afraid. Such simple observations have a way of taking us out of the whirlwind and settling us back down into the simple, basic reality. And to be able to say such things also is a deeply religious quality. To be able to recognize the pain of another person who maybe you cannot stand right there, right then, right now, because you are involved in that chaos with them, is to be able to say, even in a small way, I see you and I can start to forgive you for all the crap that you're stirring up. See, this quality of forgiveness is also a way of saying, I'm no longer going to hide from the chaos anymore. Hiding from chaos just perpetuates chaos. A lot of us like to, and I know I do, like to have the Billy Joel excuse, the Billy Joel caveat. Remember the song, We Didn't Start the Fire? Well, that recognition will only get you so far. Because you can say over and over and over again that you didn't start the fire, not responsible for the fire. But I got to tell you, when we are standing in the flames, it doesn't matter who struck the first match. At some point, you make a choice. You douse the fire or you get burned. It is that simple, regardless who set a blaze in the first place. So what are some ways that we can develop a non-anxious presence? 
and truly stay committed and stay alive. Well, yesterday's mindfulness retreat was, for those of you who were there, a great opportunity just to simply sit, to simply sit and observe the nature of our thoughts. I talked about the little raisin exercise that we did. Before we ate a single raisin, we literally listened to it. It sounds absurd, but when you engage with that and when you do it, listening, smelling, and then chewing one single raisin at least 20 times, you will recognize how remarkable, how miraculous a single raisin is. What you will start to do and what we started to do yesterday is to learn to savor and to take our time. When we savor and take our time and cultivate mindfulness, we start to head into this place of a non-anxious presence. I know how often I sit at my desk and trying to answer 30, 40 emails, also cram a sandwich into my mouth, and yet my work isn't fulfilling, my food isn't fulfilling, and then an hour later I have indigestion. That is not non-anxious presence in eating. It is not being present. Some other ways that people practice non-anxious presence, the serenity prayer, said by quite a number of us, I know. Grant me serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Basically, what can you have a hand in controlling? And what can you not? Holding on and letting go. In a chaotic situation, which is where many people who at first find themselves saying their serenity prayer are, have to start to say, I can't do anything about this to a certain extent. But there are some things that I can shape. Perhaps an even more famous prayer than the serenity prayer is the 23rd Psalm. You know it. Lord, you are my shepherd. Maketh me to lie down in green pastures and beside still waters and restoreth my soul. It's said over and over and over again in so many different traditions throughout the world, particularly at a time in which people are very fearful, which is to say the presence of death. I have to tell you, though, there is one line in that psalm that is about maintaining non-anxious presence. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. All of us, we probably already have, or at least we're going to, ourselves or someone else's, we will have to walk through that valley of the shadow of death. We will have to walk through that place where we don't know even if our wobbly knees can hold us aright, if we want to maintain presence and to be there with someone we love or ourselves as we are facing the end of our lives. And that's why that last key phrase is so important. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Presence met by presence. I think of that great line and that great call to maintain and to be there, not to run away and not to head right into the heart of the glob of glue and become stuck. I think of that this day, 
when I think of the people of Iran, hundreds of thousands of them this past week have been walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Many of them very young people. And knowing that although of course they are afraid to say with their steps what even they may not think with their heads, I will fear no evil. Voting with your feet, I will fear no evil. It is a remarkable thing to recognize that people, when they make a commitment for dignity and for freedom and for justice, what they are facing and engaging in is a necessary chaos. Chaos is not always a bad thing. Chaos is very often what precedes the creation of something new and wonderful. But to engage with that chaos, not to run away from it, but to face it and say, I will fear no evil and I will take this walk. I mean, just think for a second. Place yourself, if you can, in your mind as one of those people walking into the center of Tehran right now, knowing what they are facing. Just thinking about that. Think how incredible that is. And if we can think about what they are laying on the line and what they are risking, we know that none of us is an island. They are, as Dr. King said, creatively maladjusted. One of my favorite phrases. To be creatively maladjusted is to say something is chaotic and something is not right in our midst. And I will, through my non-anxious presence, try and change it. To stay awake and stay alive in the necessary chaos that might birth a new creation. So whether it's the fate of nations or cultures or congregations or our most intimate relationships in our families, T.S. Eliot's words are the best. Non-anxious presence, he said, in a prayer, it was a poem. Teach us to care and not to care. Simultaneously. Teach us to show up but not be afraid. Teach us to hold on to what is most important and let go of everything that is not. Teach us whatever our name for the holy, teach us to care and not to care. This is my hope for you this day and in all your days. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. O God of call into the very hearts of the hearts of reality, We know that creation leads to chaos, leads to order, leads to creation, leads to chaos. We pray for the capacity to become, to mindfully make the choice day after day, interaction after interaction, to honor the relationship that is always there in each and every one of our lives. To be, first with the breath, just breathe. To be that non-anxious presence 
that out of chaos that could lead us to fear, that can bring justice. To with the breath, out of that chaos that can bring despair, to lead with hope. Out of that chaos that would lead to fear, to respond and to be there with love. Amen.